Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is meet the champion. And welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins at all. I am your stinking host, Danny Vincent. With me, I got some other stinkers that are going to stink up this joint. You stinking stole my stinking bit for my stinking introduction. <laughs> I'm stinking Sarah. <laughs> I'm, I'm Caleb. I'm the teacher who's going to bring his record collection into school even though they're clearly gonna get destroyed that was sad but we're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> it was sad but the man's an idiot he's never read Chekhov before I mean we'll get into all that I, I, I want to argue already but we're at the 28th Academy Awards now 28th Academy Awards there were two three films nominated for eight Oscars those three films were Marty, which won four. It won Best Picture, Best Director for Delbert Mann, Best Actor for Ernest Burning, famous for SpongeBob, and Best Screenplay. That's, of course, adapted. Um, also of eight noms was a movie titled Love is a Many Splendid Thing. It won scoring for a dramatic or comedy picture, where I did not write down the composer, sorry. Uh, it also won Best Original Song, which the song was titled Love is a Many Splendid Thing from Love is a Many Splendid Thing. Then it also won Best Costume Design Color. Finally, the third film of eight noms was The Rose Tattoo. It also won three. It won Best Actress for Anna Magnani, Best Art Direction, Black and White, and Best Cinematography, Black and White. Now, there were two films that had six nominations. Those films were Picnic, which won two. It won Best Art Direction, Color, and Best Film Editing. And the other one was Love Me or Leave Me, which won Best Motion Picture Story. Finally, there were five films with four nominations. One of them was Oklahoma, which won two. It won Best Scoring with Musical Picture. Again, I did not look up the composer, sorry. And Best Sound Recording. Then, another one with four nominations was East of Eden, which won Best Supporting Actress for Joe Van Fleet. And then another was I'll Cry Tomorrow, which is a great title, which won Best Costume Design Black and White. However, there are two films that had four nominations and no wins. The first of which we'll be covering is The Blackboard Jungle. Sarah, what was The Blackboard Jungle nominated for? Yeah, The Blackboard Jungle was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Richard Brooks, who lost to uh, Patty Chayefsky for Marty. Uh, Brooks was nominated seven more times for writing and directing. Uh, he won for writing Elmer Gantry in 1960. Uh, Best Art Direction in Black and White for Cedric Givens, Richard Duell, Edwin B. Willis, and Henry Grace. And they lost to Hal Pereira, uh, Tambi Larson, Samuel M. Comer, and Arthur Krams for The Rose Tattoo. (sighs) Givens was nominated 27 more times and won 11. Duell was nominated two more times. Willis was nominated 31 more times and won eight. And Grace was nominated 11 more times and won for Gigi. Gigi. Best cinematography, black and white for Russell Harlan. Every time you say Gigi, I have to go Gigi. Sorry, go on. (laughs) Uh, Who lost to James Wong. How an Asian man. 
for the rose tattoo. Uh, Harlan was nominated five more times. And best film editing for Ferris Webster, who lost to Charles Nelson and William Lyon for Picnic. Uh, Webster was nominated two more times. 31 times is quite a bit. What's Danny, do you know what the uh, record for number of nominations is? I uh, want to no. say it's Edith Head. I mean, I think... I guess you know what I'll uh we'll just I'll Google it real quick. Well, I guess you can give some historic context early before I give some awards history because I'm going to do it this week because next week we're going to be a bit busy with some other stuff. True, true. So, not not a fun historical context segment right now, uh, but this is a movie that's very explicitly like a social trying to be a socially conscious movie and specifically dealing with school. Um, and part of that is dealing with racism. Um, this is because in 1954, the Brown v. Board uh, decision came down from the Supreme Court, which said that uh, separate but equal could not stand and that schools would have to begin integrating. Um, so we do see an integrated school here uh, and all the tensions that uh come out of that from the plot but i think i think it's important to understand where the country was at the time of this because it was not a simple you know we all know about like the state troopers having to escort students into into school because of protesters and stuff like that but it, like there was a lot of other stuff going on at the time too this was right in the middle of white flight um as white families were leaving cities for the suburbs in large part because of desegregation in several uh, aspects. And I definitely think that part of the hysteria around schools that this movie is uh, based around probably probably is coming out of uh, fears of desegregation. You also, around this time, yeah, um, 1955 also saw the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycotts, and um, Emmett Till was also lynched in 1955. So this was a very, a lot of upheaval was going on, a lot of violence. And this movie is definitely trying to, I would say, trying to have a progressive slant. But I do think that you can see within it that there is probably some of that same desegregationist hysteria that was driving some of these other historical events so i have your stats first cedric gibbons is the art director right that's yes. who sarah said yeah he holds the records for an art direction person of most okay. nominations in that field can you guess who i found is the most nominations for somebody it is a very easy guess in my opinion it is kind of well, obvious well sarah said edith head what harvey weinstein <laughs> No. I think it's Edith know? Head. I think Edith yeah. Head. What? Who's Edith, Edith Head? She's a costume designer. Uh, she's what Edna Mode was based off of. Or who Edna Mode was. Well, based she off has of. 35 and she's the most nominated woman. However, and I will say this, I cannot find an actual thing that says most nominations ever on this article. However, I do see most nominations for a living person. Ergo, I have to assume that the same person holds the record in either way, because it's the biggest number I can find on here. And that's John Williams with 52. 
Uh, okay, that makes sense. Because he got a bunch of song nominations there. Of course, so many score nominations. Um, so yeah, John Williams has the record. And he will probably add a couple more before his time is up. We'll yeah. end at 54, I bet. He's pretty old. He's got a score coming out this year and a score coming out next year. So, And then he's retiring. So yeah. theoretically. Theoret- until Spielberg's like, come on, buddy, one more. And he's like, all right, all right. <laughs> A while ago, I was watching How to Steal a Million, and he did the score for that, but he's credited as Johnny Williams, and I was very confused. I'm like, is this the same guy? Awards details, ceremony details. Big factoid about this ceremony is that Marty is the shortest film ever to win Best Picture at just 90 minutes. Uh, I lost that at Oscar trivia recently. Very sad. I should have remembered Marty. Only we'd done this episode in time. It's also the second to win the Palme d'Or in between Lost Weekend and Parasite. Other big thing about this ceremony that is um, a big deal is that this is the last year that Best Foreign Language is an honorary award. So next year it becomes competitive. Um, Yeah, I don't really see much interesting details beyond that in this. So kind of a boring ceremony. So it goes. All right. Let's enter the blackboard jungle. Rock around the clock tonight. We're gonna rock. <laughs> oh, I have things to say about good old Bill Haley and his comments. All right, blackboard jungle. It's a movie about a teacher who works in the city. My thoughts on it are the gut feeling how much Caleb has been. Attacking this film already with history. How dare he? How dare he come at me with history to put a negative slant on this film? Uh, thought it was fine. Thought it was good. Uh, fine too good type of thing. Where, you know, there's a lot of prototypical stuff here. Where it's like, oh yeah, this is where definitely like Stand and Deliver comes from. Or like Good Dead Poet Society. But it's a formula that works, I feel like, for the most part usually. Other than, of course, some white saviorism, which is present here, definitely. Uh, But, I don't know, it's entertaining, it's fun. I think it has a very clear standout sequence that I think the ending of the movie, once you view... I don't know. I actually wrote up my letterbox review for this already, where I came up with something I thought was a little clever, which was the Jack and the Beanstalk sequence I really love, but then it's like... But if you actually try to apply that media literacy that he teaches in that scene to the end of this film, you're going to come up pretty short. (laughs) And I'll get into that later, I'm sure. But what did you guys think? It did remind me of Stand and Deliver. I feel like... I don't... I feel like it was kind of... I didn't really care about the teachers is the problem. If I was this guy, I'd be killing these kids first of all but (laughs) i just feel like there's one specific scene where i did not root for the teacher and it became this big plot point in the movie and i thought it was so weird but i guess in context back then it made more sense nowadays it would not make any sense is it the thing i I texted you about i was like this just took a turn well i have a uh, i have an antidote (laughs) about that because it reminds me of my my freshman year English class when we read To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at this. but <laughs> Well, it is kind of funny. 
it's funny because I, I definitely think uh, it's something that you're like, probably in the moment, no one even thought sucking about it, but now you watch it and it immediately sticks out. Like, holy well, like, it's what? more just like, I, I don't, in this, in the movie, I think it could have worked. The problem is that, okay, so the scene in particular, it's all the students are using racial slurs. They're using the S word to describe Puerto Ricans. They're using Mick to describe um, Irish people. And they're, I can, I'm Irish, so I can say that. Um, and they're using, okay. And then the teacher goes, Sydney Poitier is in this movie. The teacher goes, would you call him the N word? And it's like, but you took it there. Word, to be clear, this is 1955. The, the term N word has not appeared yet. It's like, uh, <laughs> he took it there. He didn't have to say that. And then, of course, everybody's like, whoa. It's just, to me, that's like, what lesson are you teaching? <laughs> everyone everyone has a Kitty Pride moment. Um, okay. <laughs> Listen, this movie is very sophisticated. Oh, wait, sorry, Sarah. Were you done with uh, your... Well, well, my story was just that in my high school English class, my teacher was like, it's just a word, read it. And everybody was like, no! I think that, honestly, I think right that might have happened class, in mine, cause... too, with it. And we were just like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> okay. Because, let's just say, uh, I, I've heard people talk about uh, similar experiences in class, and there were not always uh, students with such conviction. You know, I actually have another story. If we're going to be on this really quick. When I was when we read Huck Finn my sophomore year, so we had one this the, the teacher our teacher that year was really chill and he was like smart he was like yeah you, when we're reading this aloud you don't need to say those words and the one guy's like why it's just and then he said it and our teacher's just like go take a lap <laughs> and we're like what he was like what do you mean He's like go walk around the school and come back oh, and then that kid had to. <laughs> This one guy uh, in one of my screenwriting classes, when we were reading his script, he got so mad at me because he cast me as a Mexican person, and he wanted me to do a, like a like a Speedy Gonzalez accent, and I was like, "No, I'm not gonna do that." So instead, he made me do uh, action description, which was worse because I was speaking the whole time instead of this character who was in one scene. Anyway, um. This, there's a lot of sophistication to how this film is put together. I feel like there's a lot of storytelling uh, tools that this movie uses that we haven't seen before, and obviously this is tapped into the culture. We're getting good old Bill Haley and his comments. Um, but I hate it at the same time. This movie... Listen, Sidney Poitier is really good, but every conclusion this movie comes to is garbage. And I understand... For 1955, this was probably very controversial, and I'm sure it got all the nice liberal you Hollywood open up people. The Wikipedia page because the poster is really funny. <laughs> but go on, sorry. I'm sure it got all the nice little liberal Hollywood people patting themselves on the back before they went home and underpaid their uh, person of color who was keeping their kids or whatever. Listen, this is the kind of white savior bull. I don't like to cuss on my podcasts. I don't like this film. And the more time I spend thinking about it, the more I hate it. But also, I'm a white dude from Tennessee, so I don't feel like I'm qualified to go into why I hate it so much. I mean, it definitely, like, 
it does come across like Cindy Poitier's character is like one of the good ones. Um, if you just work really hard, then you can beat the system. Okay, so I'm about to say something that's going to get me canceled in 10 years, which is, is this a white savior movie? Yes. But I'd point out that there is not a single, I, I don't know if this, this isn't like an excuse or anything, but it's also a white loser movie. Like for the first, like, there are no people of color in this movie besides the kids. There are like, and inherently in a teacher, I don't know. I don't want to defend it too much because you are correct to say it is a white savior movie, but it's like, uh, I'm curious because there's a the reason I bring this up. And this is why I'm kind of defending is that there is not a remake, but a film very similar to this called To Sir With Love that I noticed was noted because Sidney Poitier plays the teacher in that. And it's basically the exact same plot as this. And I'm curious how that one goes. You know what movie, you know what movie this reminded me of? Y'all ever seen Lean On Me? No. I saw Stand By Me recently. Lean On Me is a Morgan Freeman movie. He plays a real-life uh, figure who goes into a drug-ridden school and snaps the people into shape by chaining the doors shut and going to jail because he, you know, committed fire code violations and all this <laughs> stuff. It is... It is... <sighs> it is strong man. Hurrah, hurrah. We're going to come in here and we're going to crack heads and we're going to solve the problem with just imminent force. And guess what? It didn't work. That school wasn't fixed in real life. It only was fixed till the credits of Lean on Me. And I feel like this school is only fixed to the credits of Blackboard Jungle. But I'm I'm going to get off my soapbox and let y'all talk about the movie. I mean, I don't know. I'm coming at this movie with a... I don't want to like play the I work with kids card. But I, you know, I go into any movie like this going like, all right, so how is this movie going to portray the, because I'm not a teacher, but like the experience of working with kids who can be troublemakers. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I was talking to one of my old coworkers recently and they were talking, we were talking about how there's a lot of people at my job who not because the one who, who I'm specifically talking about just recently quit. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of people at my job who just immediately will look at like the older kids and be like, well, they're, they're not going to listen to me. And it's like, well, yeah, of course they're not going to listen to you if you act like that, you know? So I'm looking at any movie like this always with that angle with, is this movie going to be like, it's these kids fault. And thing is, I think there's a large portion of the movie that seems to be pointing to, no, it's not. It's that no one ever bothered to try like his breakdown in the teacher's lap, just like that. But then the ending is like, no, actually, there are two bad apples here that we got to get rid of. And like, we, we just have to give up on them because there's no way you can ever get these kids better. And I'm just like, no, I don't. I, that to be kind of like, that's what I meant by like, I think there's there's a really great sequence in this movie. that I feel like I will be thinking about for a while. Just when I think about like good scenes in the stuff club history. And that's when um, the main character decides to show an animated short of Jack and the Beanstalk in school. And he's like, well, what's this about, guys? And, you know, originally, like, a couple people were like, yeah, it's all right. Like, you know, it's Jack and the Beanstalk. Who cares? He got the girl at the end. And he's like, no, he stole. He stole from the giant. And that's not fair. There's no actual comeuppance to him. And it's like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, this is what I'm trying to teach you to, like, engage with the story and try to see why these stories live on, what these stories are actually telling us. Which is why at the end, when he 
kicks two kids out of his class after trying to, like, after they attack him, but he, like, fights back, and he's like, they're going to the principal's office, and they're never being in the school again. It's like, okay, but, like, what this whole movie was is, like, you can fix the school and actually care for these children, but then at the end, you give up on two of them to save everyone. It's like, I don't think... I mean, yes, that is what the movie always presents us as the answer, but as, like, a social thing where it's like, this is the message of the film, it's like, kind of the bad at the end of me. There's a lot of bad, there's a lot of other bad stuff throughout, but that is, to me, the thing that sticks out to me, the ending of the movie is what people think about, you know? And leaving the movie, they're like, oh, that's Sidney Poitier, he's, he's great. Oh, and those other people in his class, they're great, but oh, man, those two bad eggs, they're going to be in jail the rest of their life. That's good. That's where they belong. It's like, and it's not like I'm expecting a, mo- a movie from 1955 to address the school to prison pipeline, <laughs> but it's definitely implied in this. It's just like treated as something that's not a problem. Well, like it is treated as a problem, but I don't think the film's is going far enough to like actually like because it's like oh, it is bad that these kids are delinquents and stuff but it never gets into the reasons why it's just they are man it sure sucks that you know these people from somewhere we're not gonna really delve into you know the the defunding of um schools that became segregated because of the rise of private schools we're not gonna get into any of that we're just gonna be like oh it sucks that these kids are bad and that these other kids are good isn't that wacky i want to see if this movie ever so, okay, here's the thing. No, you know what? Other people keep talking. I'm going to look up before I say something stupid about segregation, because I do not know a lot about segregation that wasn't in the South. Someone else talk. Please. I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like the teachers reminded me of cops in this. <laughs> it just yeah. felt like it felt like the ending, are. the message was like, if you get enough people on the right side of the law, then you don't need to worry about retaliation. And it just felt like, why is it that he can get stabbed, but the female teacher can almost get sexually assaulted and no consequences? Yeah, we, I was, we have to talk about that. Yeah, 100% we need to talk about. Sorry, go on. It just feels like, I feel like this movie was made today. If it was, stick with me here. Made today. Based on a Stephen King novel, all of the kids who wronged him get killed. For real. That's how I feel like this should have gone. They're sending, they're sending letters to his wife. They're calling his wife. Like, what? I mean, well, go on. No, I, I don't want to chase that right now. I just, I don't have an interesting opinion of this movie. That's the problem. I mean, if we're talking about modern versions of this movie, there's a whole season of The Wire set in schools, and I feel like that handles this a lot better. Well, but if, comparing, you, sorry, since you guys want to talk about like modern depictions, I want to talk briefly then about the one thing I definitely want to bring up at some point on this, which is I think it's a bummer we haven't had a good school drama since Dead Poet Society. Uh, um, and I've the heard reason Freedom I, Writers is okay. I haven't seen it, but maybe. But I've seen The Great Debaters, which is solid, but it's not. Not great, <laughs> but my point is one thing I was going to bring up is um how this is just very much a Danny thing, but like my most bummed out film that like was announced and didn't come together recently is definitely the wrong answer movie that Ryan Coogler was working on 
which was going to be about the test cheating scandal and like about obviously Michael B. Jordan as a teacher. And I was like, oh man, I really wish that movie happened in between the Black Panther movies. Cause one, I would like to see another non Black Panther <laughs> Coogler movie. But two, I look at that and be like, man, a movie going after standardized testing today told in the framework of like, you know, Dead Poet Society or a movie like this that's not as, you know what I mean? Like a movie that fits the archetypes of this without necessarily the problematic content would be something I'd love to see made today. Yeah, I think that'd be good. I mean, I think you get a little bit of it in the middle section of Moonlight, um, but that's not what the movie's about. I do want to talk about uh, Rock Around the Clock, though. I mean, there's a, yeah, and yeah, we, there's a lot of small stuff in this movie I want to talk about. So go ahead. You go first, though. Yeah, so this movie begins, it has some pop music throughout, but it begins with and ends with Rock Around the Clock. Opens with a Star Wars opening crawl. It yes, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little PSA at the beginning, and then we get Bill it's Haley like, and his comments hey, coming schools in. schools are great. <laughs> That's what the PSA is. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Traditionally, <laughs> traditionally Bill Haley's, uh, Bill Haley in the comments is Rock Around the Clock was considered the first like rock and roll song. That's not true because black people were making rock and roll before white people were stealing it. But it was one of the songs because Bill Haley was white. It was one that like broke into white audiences first. That's the thing. That's the thing. He's white. He's white. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a thing where um like rock and roll music <laughs> sorry like rock and roll music because of its connection and its origin in black culture was like this much like the rest of desegregation that we talked about in historical context it was considered like this dangerous thing um and it was a very new thing both Elvis and Bo Diddley made their television debuts this year um and it's it just I feel like we hear rock around the clock and it shows us like, oh, it's this fun song that you know we probably grew up hearing and it's pretty uh pretty generic um to us, but like no, this probably would have been a very contemporary song of the day. And it just keeps tying into this idea of like, well, is the movie playing this to be like, oh, look at these dangerous teens, or is it trying to be relevant to teens. And I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, don't they play it again near the end? So I feel yeah, like they, to me, it's definitely not like sent to be a negative thing because they play it at the end. Uh, so I think it's interesting. I think it's does a very good job of, you know, you watch all these older movies and some of the, uh, and granted, I've said this before. A lot of these movies we see, I can't tell if they're supposed to be period pieces or not because the contemporary time is a period piece to me. Uh, but, you know, they all start with like these big booming overtures or something like that. Um, so by setting it, playing this song here, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the 1950s. Oh, it's made in the 1950s. So, like, I don't know. I think it's a good way to set the tone and be like, yeah, this movie takes place today. Dun, dun, dun. Which what? helps it as a social message type of movie. Not saying yeah. that, again, not saying social message is good, but this is clearly a movie designed to be a social message movie. Well, and for a lot of complicated factors around like the availability of records and radio and stuff, pop music in movies before this was almost always performances. It was almost always diegetic. 
This is the first time we're getting it be part of a soundtrack, or at least first time we are. I know the Defiant ones a little bit later uh, will also use pop music in its soundtrack, both diegetically and non-diegetically. Um, so it's it's an it is a completely new thing in films. It's a completely new toolkit within popular films to use pop music in this way. So like it is kind of groundbreaking for American cinema. At the same time, like I do think that there is a lot of I think there is a lot of like baggage to unpack whenever rock and roll is used in a 1950s context. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know if we're not I I don't know if I'm necessarily the person to equipped to properly unpack it though. You know what I mean? I agree with you. It's like I don't really know how else to really dive into it. I wanted to well first I wanted to jump back to a scene Sarah talked about briefly earlier about the woman. Uh which I don't know. I know I think Sarah looked it up because I saw her give a facial reaction. But Caleb, if you didn't look up the poster on Wikipedia, it is of the woman in the library, irised in. There's a man in silhouette reaching towards her with the tagline, the most startling picture in years, MGM's Blackboard Jungle. And under the title is just a picture of the main character and his wife necking, (laughs) which is is amusing to me. That's so funny. We talked about it. It's we like, oh no, about, like, this woman's under attack. Oh, but these, these guys are having I think it's so funny that they very obviously could not kiss while they were both on the bed. So they kept having to like nuzzle each other. Well, I'll, I was going to, because I texted you this. I'm like, I jumped when they said the word sexy. I was like, whoa, we can say that now? They said sexy and the moon is blue. Where, where have you been? But the moon is blue was, this as far as I'm aware is, follows the code. This was, as far as I'm aware, did not reach censorship problems. Here, I was like, whoa, I thought this was just a school drama. I said the word sexy. They're saying they're going to go neck in the, uh, in the uh, thing, you know. Uh, the taxi, I don't know why I said the thing. They're going to neck somewhere. Uh, but yeah. I uh, remember when that car completely flipped over because yeah. someone nudged yeah, it. I, I was like, whoa, what's going on right now? That was so... <laughs> was literally, they, they spent money for that. For what? <laughs> Best special effects for sure. However, that also made the movie lose a little bit of credibility in my eyes. It got, literally, <laughs> these, it's these, just, these, one car drives by it and it literally just goes, whoop. And it's like, these darn kids. <laughs> yeah, this is happening every day. <laughs> Imagine that being your car, and you walk out in your car. Not again. <laughs> well, it must weigh like only ten or fifteen pounds, so you should be able to flip it right back over. Um. Okay, so I was going to talk about this female character, the side character, who is the only woman teacher at the school that we see that isn't. Like eighty years old, um, maybe that was ages to me. I thought everyone's probably sixty-five, but still not very old. Uh, and she walks in on her first day, and everyone looks at her, and go like, "I don't know why you're dressing like that." And then as soon as she goes up to like get her kids, everyone hoops and hollers for her. And the thing I noticed, well, I, I mean, this is meant to be a noticeable moment, but it's something where again we're reaching a point where these movies can have more stuff in them content-wise is, I don't know, to me this stood out was when she dropped the papers and the guy got it for her. 
so she wouldn't have to bend over. And like, I don't know. I wasn't expecting even the implication of that. Maybe I'm getting too impressed by this movie from 1955 with the raunchy level of it because of how chaste everything else we've watched is. But anyway, <laughs> the silence means I should definitely move on. Uh, <laughs> but going back to this character, the reason I want to talk about her is because the bad guy of the movie, Artie, played by Vic Morrow, who we also definitely have to talk about at some point, because I promised I'd talk about Vic Morrow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but he devises, really at the end, he lays out his whole scheme, and it's over, very over-elaborate. But a part of it is to write letters to the wife of, um, I should look up what the main character's name is. Like, hey, like he, it's played by Glenn Ford. Richard. Oh, no, Dadier. But his name is Dadier, because that's yeah, what yeah. his name is, Mr. Dadier. Um, Daddy-o. Yeah, exactly. They call him Daddy-o, which is... I think, honestly, let's be real. They probably are like, why can we... Let's have him call him Daddy-o, but it wouldn't be offensive. Oh, let's name him daddy A. Yeah, that works. That's, and probably someone in the room was like, yeah, that's really good. Anyway. Um, I mean, it's so, an adapted screenplay, so... Somebody wrote it. <laughs> well, but anyway, Daddy-a... Uh, so she she's married to Daddy-a. Uh, and they keep getting letters in the mail that are just like, your husband's with another woman right now. He's not actually at school. And like, Vic Morrow prank calls her at one point. And what's weird is after the crank call, we cut to Daddy A at the rehearsal for the Christmas dinner, where all of a sudden, this woman, female, this woman female, I don't want to say, this, this female teacher walks up to him and goes like, wouldn't you ever want to just get away? Maybe with me? And it's like, whoa, where is this coming from? And like, she actually is interested in him. And what's weird is it's never acknowledged again in the movie. No, she- it's pretty it's pretty obvious, I think, throughout that she's interested in him. I mean, he's a just- well looking man, she's a good looking woman, and everyone else they work with is either like twenty years older than them or stupidly brings their records to school. So, like, <laughs> what is the- <laughs> like but my point is, is like that. It sounds like it didn't stand out, stick out to you, but that stuck out to you, Sarah. Like how bizarre that scene was, where she's suddenly like, really like, yeah, you, I'm into you, and it's like it's not even that. It's weird that she's into him. It's weird that she's into him. He rebuffs her, but then it never actually comes up with his wife. Wow, you know that's the whole thing to me. It's like I feel like the whole plot point is weird that it's there. I mean. I think the idea is just, it's just one of those like moral high ground moments where it's like, oh yeah, this is our hero. He's not going to do anything. Good for him for not doing the basic minimum of not cheating on his wife, who was pregnant oh. at the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, both he and his wife seem to never talk to each other because they never, like, this whole issue could be simply brought up if the wife confronted him about it. Well, okay, but here's the thing is I feel like she doesn't actually, I, I, I don't know. I actually think that's one of the more, like, nicely done parts of the movie that, the thing to me, to me that's weird is that she, the teacher is actually into him. And, like, she tries to, like, get with him. Like, she actively tries. And that's what's weird to me. What's not weird to me is the way the plot otherwise goes. Because it seems to me like she is, like, she believes in him. Like, she 100% believes that She's like, but she she also knows that he's busy at work and that if she brought it up to him, 
And I know you might be like, well, this is being a bad husband, but her, her husband would be like, I, I'm not seeing anyone, you know, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, although, granted, the husband would probably also figure out, this is probably my students pranking her, you know, like, very quickly. But, yeah, pranking her. What? <laughs> just just, just a prank. Hey, guys, welcome back. I have another epic prank. Okay, I was thinking of the word crank call. That's why, because it is a crank call. But, yes, they are harassing her. You're right. Um... But I I don't know. I think the whole that whole plot line is actually pretty believably dug because I actually I buy into the relationship a lot from what we see of it. It's just the movie is not about their relationship. You know? I don't know. I feel like it's kind of unrealistic. I feel like from my personal experience, if I'm mad about something that I'll say, you know, I just think it's funny how you did this and <laughs> bring it up incessantly until I get an answer. I mean, okay, like, I, I get that, but I don't know. I don't want to be like, it, it worked for me, you know? Like, I'm not going to argue too hard on it if it didn't work for our review, guys, but I bought bought that entire plot more than I bought some other stuff in this. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about besides me bringing up Vic Morrow? <laughs> oh, I did um, read. I did read on IMDb Trivia that this movie was banned from the Venice Film Festival and the controversy just made it more popular. Ooh. And I'm wondering if we might this... see a parallel this year. I just, wanted to talk about, I just wanted to talk about Venice Film Festival. Well, which, there's plenty of movies at Venice that could qualify for that. There's Blonde, which we've talked about on this podcast before. There's The Whale, which seeing everyone on Letterboxd that I follow hate, which is amusing to me. Um, what film generated controversy at Venice Film Festival? Oh, oh, that's different. That movie has controversy because of the stuff behind the scenes. And it's a movie that's about a movie that you have to go <laughs> see in the theater. Wait, what's it's that type of movie, movie. <laughs> and I think... <laughs> You know, by the time this episode's out, this, that, that movie will be out. So Yo, we never won at the box office. Yeah, I probably. just have to step in here. You realize that half our viewers probably, <laughs> and me, have no okay. idea what you're talking okay. about. Well, you should know. I think most of our viewers probably know about the Don't Worry Darling and stuff. It was the number one trending topic on Twitter, Oh, period, that stuff? Okay, Besides, okay. The, until the queen died. Like, literally the queen dying. I, I saw something uh, here, like, still Olivia Wilde must be relieved. Olivia <laughs> Wilde. Okay, you just need to say the name of these things, and then I will be cued in. I do oh, not have I, a Twitter. I thought my really bad Harry Styles impression was cued you in. It's like a maze, that's amazing. Well, it's, it's, it's such a bad impression that I didn't feel... It was like my Ringo impression I tried doing the other day. Uh, I mean, I feel like every, every, every one of these re-record, I do a pretty good Chris Pine impression, so... Do it. I can't do it without laughing. I thought you were just doing the face. I saw one day where he's looking up and he's just like, oh. I I mean, I think we all saw the Photoshop of him on the note post. (laughs) Um, Anyways, this movie got banned from Venice Film Festival. How long do you think the standing ovation would have been? 20 20 minutes. The first person to sit down. The favorite thing is like, oh no. Talk about film festivals. The only thing I've tweeted about the film festivals at all was when someone tweeted like the Fableman's 
standing ovation was going on, I immediately tweeted like, everyone there, do not sit down. They can't stop the timer if you sit down. It's like, it's like Jigsaw. I was you thinking it's like those people was like, don't get out of line to, if you're in line to vote. They cannot let you vote if you're still in line. But it was standing ovation. Okay. This is so, so irrelevant to the So movie. there's that weird part where he goes to the good the good school full of white children and they're saying the they're singing the national anthem. That part oh. just felt very culty and very nineteen fifties. We're gonna stick it to the communists. Speaking of speaking of uh white people, which is very relevant to this. Uh I Sarah and Caleb are aware of this, is that I watched the Droopy Dog parody of this short called Blackboard Jumble after it. In Wait, which so I his, name is, pl- his name is Droopy? I thought you kept misspelling Snoopy. No, it's Droopy the Dog. You know Droopy Dog. You've seen, uh, I know Caleb hasn't, but you've seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? Yeah, but I can tell you who that is. Droopy I've seen dog the scene the, with Droopy the Dog from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's the scene where the, he's the dog who's in the elevator who's like, going oh, up soon. Yeah, it's I Droopy see. Dog. Uh, let me let me find the because I wrote down the quote because um, the short is just about it's not Droopy it's one of his side characters I don't know because no one knows the Droopy characters because it's not relevant to our lives <laughs> but becomes How a teacher with like Droopy's little brother uh, like little brothers and like he just messes them around them and he pulls out this paint right because it's art class time he pulls out a blue and a red paint bucket and he goes paint me something really patriotic. Like a Confederate flag. And he was like, oh, all right. Okay. That's that's what this is. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Immediately I was like, all right. Um, I just want to say on Droopy's uh Wikipedia page, it has <laughs> it's a sentences. He's known to be the guider of Cartoon Network back when it first launched at October 1st, 1992. <laughs> the guider. Um. All right. Well, hopefully Sydney Bodier reappears on our podcast. I don't know if he will or not. Hopefully he does. He's a cool guy. We like him. He did win. Yeah. But well, Sarah. Before I talk about Vic Morrow, or we want to end with your question that you text us beforehand, or should we talk about Vic Morrow oh. first? <sighs> I've got well, another thing to talk about too. But okay. Well, then should I just do Vic Morrow now? Somebody else nothing to do first. with the actual film. Yeah. Uh yeah, let's talk about that. So Vic Morrow, uh, which I I assume everyone on this call is aware of this story. And if they're not, well, they're gonna have a, uh, hear a lot here. Which is um so I hope you're not a John Landis fan. Yeah, so on July twenty-third, nineteen eighty-two. Uh, they were shooting a film version uh, called of the classic television series, The Twilight Zone. The film was to be an anthology film with scenes direct, anthology segments directed by Joe Dante, George Miller, Steven Spielberg, and John Landis. John Landis's segment is about. Uh, let me look it up because I've actually seen The Twilight Zone. I forget. Isn't it like Vietnam? Mm, well, okay. So the segment of it is is that. The main character, who's played by Vic Morrow, is a racist who was mad that he was passed over promotion favor of a Jewish co-worker. So he starts ranting, he says anti-Semitic stuff, he says like racist stuff 
specifically towards black people and Asian people as well. So then he uh, gets on this crazy journey where he, you know, it's the Twilight Zone. It's this is this. I'll be honest. This would have been a bad. That's the thing to me always about the story is that it's not. It's okay. It is objectively horrible that this happened, but I think it makes it somehow worse that it was for such a shitty movie. Ah, that's a bad joke. We should probably cut that out. But it is like a very shitty segment. It is a very like it's not it's not clever. It's just this guy's racist, so he gets cursed and he wakes up in World War II in the Holocaust as a Jewish person being killed. And then he wakes up in Alabama being killed during the Ku Klux Klan. And it's, you know, it's just like he goes through all these historical things that like kill him over and over again in a horrible way. Now, Big Morrow is the lead of this. And in one of these scenes, he goes back in time to Vietnam War, where he becomes a Vietnam dad who's protecting two children from American troops. So I'm just going to basically skim the Wikipedia article, reading it out loud, which is John Landis violated child labor laws by hiring two seven-year-old girls, uh, sorry, seven-year-old girl, seven-year-old boy, without any permits. He then also did not do proper safety tests. And it was paid under the table. The children were paid under the table because children were not allowed to work at night. Um, and then, of course, these people, these two children and Vic Morrow died horribly because they did not. Uh, so the scene is Vic Morrow is carrying the two children away from soldiers pursuing in a helicopter. Uh, now, I will just read the Wikipedia article here word for word so I get it entirely right. During the filming, Wingo, who was the pilot, stationed the helicopter at 25 feet in the air while hovering near a mortar, a large mortar effect, which is, I don't know what that is. Uh, oh, it's like an air mo like the mortar is like the air that's keeping him like supposed to, it's just like a special effect. He then turned the vehicle 180 degrees. The effect was detonated. While the helicopter's tail rotor was still above it, which caused the rotor to fail and detach from the wheel, the helicopter spun out of control, which, at the same time, Morrow dropped one of the kids in the water and was reaching to grab them. When the helicopter fell on top of him, two children, instantly decapitating two of the children, Morrow and one of the children, while the other child was crushed to death by the helicopter's right landing skid. All three of them died instantly. This became this huge defense trial where... Actually, I thought uh, I thought the, their defense was that one of the one of the children did not die instantly, and that was why it was so bad. It says all three of them died. In, maybe the pilot didn't die. Nothing here says about the what happened with the pilot afterwards. But I mean, I could look up quickly what happened to the pilot. But no, it says on the Wikipedia all three of them died almost instantly. The thing is, is that there were two decapitations, and one of them got crushed horribly. The big thing was that the kid's father said that he heard John Landis saying the helicopter should fly lower, and all the parents were told there would be no helicopters or explosives on set. Um, and of course, John Landis got off and directed stuff afterwards. Uh, and yeah, it's one of Hollywood's horrible stories. And uh, if you want to read more details and see how much I butchered it, because I'm sure I butchered some parts of it, Everything on the story is out there. It is considered one of the worst safety incidents to happen in history. And it is what I would say 
Fortunately, Vic Morrow is probably most known for is this story. Um, and fortunately, oh, I would I would say, unfortunately, it's somehow not the thing John Landis is most known for when it should be the only thing people think about when they hear John Landis is how he killed three people. Well, if only John Landis acted more like a teacher to these children than a director. All right. I don't, I don't know. It's called okay. a transition. Ever heard of it? Yeah, it's it's really hard to transition out of that, Danny. So, I mean, that's. I mean, I can um, talk about Vic Morrow a bit in this movie. If you want me to? I like Vic Morrow in this. I think he's yeah, good. he's not. I don't like the character, but he's good. Yeah, I think yeah. All right. <laughs> Wasn't that a little better of a transition than well? At least at least John Landis was. Imagine John Landis is teaching. Sarah's like Danny. Shut up, you piece of shit. I hate you. I just like okay. I mean it's it's a story that people should know. I'm not sure if this was the source <laughs> for it. Yeah, it it I don't know. Um we can talk about that after the podcast. Well, I, I do told you talk last about. week I was gonna do this this week. You had a whole two weeks to tell you had a whole two weeks to say, Dan, you don't need to I talk don't about think it. about this podcast once we're done recording it. <laughs> um, I have three other ones to think about. <laughs> okay. There's a scene in this. I would say, in general, I think we're all on the same page that Sidney Poitier is really good at this. Um, and I think the best parts of the movie usually focus around him. There's a pretty good one where he kind of baits uh, the teacher into saying something racist to kind of prove to him that the inward stunt they did wasn't uh, purely innocent, like the teacher wants to wants to play off. However, there is a scene. It's kind of the hinge point for his character where he and some other black students who we hadn't seen up until this point seen go down Moses and the teacher hears them do this. And that is kind of the transition in their relationship where the teacher starts treating him with more dignity and uh, Sidney Poitier's character starts uh, giving him, cutting him some slack. It is such, and I'm sure this wasn't a trope at the time, but it is reflective of something that happens in real life. If your movie has a black person's talent as the reason for why the main character sees them as like a person with dignity, that's kind of messed up. It's kind of messed up a little bit. I'd not, agree. not a fan. I would agree. Not great. Not a great moment. He was so good. I mean, he was so good. I mean, he played the he's piano. A very, he's a very talented singer, and he can play the piano. Do we like, think that that was really him? Because his voice was really deep. I don't know. Whoever sang was good, but like that also reflects Sidney Poitier's career, right? Because like he was often um, one of the criticisms of Sidney Poitier was that he played a lot of characters who were like, you know, very white friendly type characters, and that it was a very um, I think this is kind of a narrow way of viewing his whole career, but that he was kind of the respectability politics type of actor of of his time. Um, and I feel like that is, I, I don't think that's his fault. I think that's what movies kind of shoved him into. And I feel like this is one of those examples. This is, uh, his character is given, given like, something that he can relate to the white character with, and then all of a sudden they are on good terms. Instead of the white character actually having to go through any work and 
actually addressing the internalized racism that the movie acknowledged just a few scenes earlier. I mean, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like, 100%, like, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Also, Jamie Farr from MASH is in here as one of the kids, and it's fun to see him as a teenager. Also, Jonathan Kent. Yeah, kind of. All right, Sarah, do you have anything else you wanted to say about the movie? Um, oh, yeah. Listen, okay. So there's the actor. <laughs> okay. So there's the main guy, Jonathan Kent. There's Josh, whose records got destroyed. And then there's another guy. I think it's funny we never talked about that scene. <laughs> we just alluded to it. We did not talk about it. And the guy, the other guy, his voice sounded so familiar to me. He sounds like he sounds like a Pixar character to me. I have a very distinct, like a line of an act, like a character going like, what's the matter, kid? Like that kind of line. And I could not think of who it was. I kept racking my brain. And then I was like, well, maybe it's a live action character. Or yeah, maybe it's a live action character. So then I had this distinct vision of an older actor with like puffy eyes and kind of a droopy face. And then I realized that I was thinking of William B. Davis from the X-Files, who is not who I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now... Uh, look, I'm a Pixar podcast. I, gotta, I can figure this out. I don't out. know oh, who it mind. is. I think maybe I'm thinking of Ed Asner, but I feel like his voice was like gruffer than Ed Asner. I don't... I might be thinking of... I don't know who I'm thinking of. And that's what's frustrating, is I never figured it out. So if you know who I'm thinking of, I mean, make sure to write us a letter. Oh. And <laughs> we'll talk about it at the next podcast. I mean, we won't because we'll record the next podcast when the day this episode will come out. But maybe in two in two episodes from now, we'll bring it up. Maybe also, I'll figure this out. Write us a letter, put it in your post box, and hope it somehow ends up to the three of us. <laughs> you need to send three separate letters so we all get a copy. All right. Uh, I think we could... Uh, Sarah, what was this nominated for? I think we can do this thing. Um, This movie was nominated for... Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Black and White, Best Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Film Editing. I'll be honest. As someone who liked this movie, I don't know if I'd nominate it for any of these. <laughs> I think there are places I might nominate it. I don't think these are it. Um, of these, I think the most impressive thing to me is the art direction. I think the school is pretty distinct. I think the exteriors are really good. Uh, I like their apart. I like the hospital, the apartment. You go to a lot of different places here. It always, it always looks solid. I'll go of art direction. Good sense. Um, I'll give it editing, but I don't remember why, <laughs> which is kind of the crux of this whole film. Um, there was something in the editing why? early on. Um, something in the editing. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, yeah, I'll give it to editing. You know what's so frustrating about this movie? Is that, like, I hate it, but from a filmmaking perspective, it's really good, and it's honestly one of the better made movies we've watched. And I do think part of that comes down to the editing. This is a very well-edited movie. It um, is able to compress time and space in a very believable manner, and it feels much more in line with... uh, Less with Golden Age Hollywood and even more creeping into like new Hollywood and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, sure. All right. So, what? Okay, film editing. 
So what, Caleb, would you nominate it for? Um, Sidney Poitier is, despite all the problems with this movie, he rises above them in his pure charisma. Um, and I do think that one scene where he calls out the teacher on his uh, implicit racism is very good. And I wish the whole movie had been like that. I agree. Are you going Sydney too? Yeah. Great. Now I'm going to get double canceled. I'm not going to Sydney. Uh, I think he's a great option. I think Glenn Ford is also a great option. I think he does a lot of stuff here that is not written on the page. But when I look at this movie, and I really think if I saw this movie not knowing who, very specifically, not knowing who Sidney Poitier was, even though obviously I can tell he's a good actor from it. Because I feel like you watch this movie expecting Sidney Poitier, you know, because he's Sidney Poitier, you expect him to be the best part. And to me, I was surprised at how, like, well acted I thought Vic Morrow's character was, considering how it could very much be, like, a very flat character on the page. And yet I felt... obviously not when he was like harassing the wife and stuff, but I felt like a weird sympathy towards him, especially at the point. I remember there's a scene in it where he says to, uh, he says to the main character that he wants to go to jail because I don't remember the exact reason, but he like words it in a way that's like, huh? Yeah, that is to him. It sounds very well reasoned. And I, I, I have to go with Vic Morrow here. I was very, it's like the type of thing where I'm like, I understand why watching this movie he immediately went out and booked more parts. Uh, and I know you could say the same thing for Sidney Poitier, but the difference is, is I feel like Vic Morrow here was so much more of a surprise to me, which I guess isn't really fair because, you know, you go in this movie now expecting good Sidney Poitier, but I, I want to give a shout out to Vic Morrow anyway. So he's my pick. Okay. Good job. I guess. <laughs> okay. I mean, man, if I keep talking about this movie, I'm just going to go into another rant. You don't want that. So uh, I was waiting for uh, someone to cue me. But it's okay. I can cue myself. I did. Want I to know what job. we're going to happen. What we're going to do next time. What are we doing next time? Well, we're staying at this Academy Awards. With another film that has four nominations and no wins. Now. Let me tell you. Drum roll, please. Movie directed by Mank. Guys and Dolls. Marlon Brando. Gene Simmons. Frank Sinatra. Vivian Blaine, Guys and Dolls, America's Own Musical. I have a few page open, so I'm just reading the, the, the poster. Uh, I've never seen this. I have. I've seen and, the first 15 minutes. And we are going to hopefully have a guest for the first time ever. That's exciting, right? Actually, we might have two guests, is what I heard. <laughs> you know i think we should just have three guests and that we shouldn't be on it <laughs> maybe we could get two guys and two dolls and by dolls i mean we're gonna call up uh i don't know the cast of barbie to come on her podcast i don't i don't know <laughs> uh i'm danny vincent you can follow me on letterboxd at blankments for all my movie takes you can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, where Sarah will be guesting on it very soon. So, get okay. hyped. Also, so, you know who else will be starring on that podcast soon? Our editor, Joe. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. That's right. If you're not going to cue me in, I'm going to steal your thanks, Joe, Caleb. 
Thanks, Joe, for editing this. Thanks, Joe. Guys, I don't want to. I want to apologize, not for any of my opinions on the movie. Those hold fast, and I only grow stronger in my convictions every passing moment. But I was, I was very uh, ranty in this episode, and I don't like being that way. So I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get canceled on this episode, like 15 years. So it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. Um, If you want to listen to me in podcasts where I usually am not this negative, you should check out uh, me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. And from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which Sarah just guested on to talk about All-Star Superman. All New All-Star Superman. That is true. I did do that. Um, Twice. (laughs) Yeah. First time was... Don't spoil that for them. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-Y 29. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, my name, Sarah Knopf, check out Femtober 5, the requel. Um, you can find us on Twitter. <laughs> Every week I, I kind of lose consciousness at this part. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Slump Club Podcast, Slump Club Pod, uh, Instagram, Slump Club Podcast, which I realized I I forgot the password. Um, <laughs> and, oh. and Facebook, the Snub Club. Um, God bless. Team Flow. <laughs> <laughs> Team Flow. <laughs> Honestly, she got it off on Sarah's team. Flush. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, wait, no, no, I have to say. So we'll see you next time with Guys and Dolls.